Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. And welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. We're heading into what is going to be a difficult weekend, a trip to Anfield to face Liverpool. Never easy, especially not easy when you're going into the game off the back of a disappointing result, that 1-0 defeat to Stoke, a game that we should have won, all those players being played out of position. What the hell's going on there? But people think it's just happening on the pitch. I've been told quite reliably that it is happening off the pitch as well. Everyone is basically all over the place. Ivan Gazidis is now the first team masseuse, which is good for him. He likes to be hands-on, right? Boro Primarac is now the new chief financial controller. Vic Akers, the new international head of marketing. And Sir Chips Keswick is now literally head of chips. Potato man. There's also a new role for Josh Kroenke, who will be doing nothing in a very different way than he's been doing it in the past. I'm not quite sure of the details of that, but trust me, this is what's going on. The whole place is in a shambles. Upside down, back to front, topsy-turvy, the whole lot. But anyway, this weekend, we face Liverpool. And it's really important that we get something from this game for two reasons. First reason is that after the game on Sunday, there's an interlull, right? So all the players are going to go off here, there, and everywhere, play international football for their countries, while we would have to face two weeks of, oh my God, it's all gone tits up this early introspection. I don't need that. You don't need that. Nobody needs that, which is why we need to get at least some kind of a result on Sunday at Anfield. Second reason, and I'm not quite sure why this is the second reason it's important to get something from the game on Sunday, but the transfer window takes place next week. Next Thursday, it closes at 11 p.m. on Thursday evening, and that's a different thing entirely. It's got nothing whatsoever to do 
with the game on Sunday. So maybe I was thinking of a different reason as to why we needed to get something from that game and then got distracted by the thought of transfers and transfer windows. I can't remember what the other reason was. So I'm not going to think too hard about it, but let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk a little bit about transfers and players who haven't come in, players who haven't gone out. It's all it's all a bit up in the air, and it's difficult to listen to Arsene Wenger and quite understand what the plan is. He talked about Thomas Lamar, the player from Monaco that we have been pursuing all summer long, all summer, and he said, that deal is dead. Monaco don't want to sell because they've sold Mendy and Silva and Bakayoko and they're going to sell Mbappe and they're going to sell some other guy, Fabinho, I think, who sounds like a a stripper of some kind who does hen parties. But that's beside the point. Now Monaco will not sell Thomas Lamar. That's uh, that's what Arsene Wenger says. It's done. It's definite. It's over. So that one is out the window. And he said, look, we have the, the quality and the numbers to cope with that. But surely if you're going after a player like Thomas Lamar, it's an indication that you want to add more quality. Not necessarily about numbers. We know we've got plenty of numbers. We've got loads of players. We've got more players than we know what to do with. But do we have enough players of sufficient quality to improve the first team to make this team into title challengers? I'm not so sure about that. He was also then asked about uh, what might happen in the in the final week of the transfer window. Would there be players coming in? Would there be players going out? And this is what he said. Both will happen, can happen, you know. It depends how many players will go uh, to see uh, if we can bring one. Uh, you're on alert in the last seven days. I did like that, where he said both will, and then corrected himself, both can happen, not making uh, any promises there in that regard. Then almost said we look to bring one in, but didn't. And then said that we're going to be on alert uh, for the last seven days of the transfer window. Personally, I am not expecting anything to happen. Um At this point, I would be surprised if we made another purchase. And part of the reason for that is something else that Arsene Wenger said during his press conference on Thursday. He talked about giving a chance to to young players. And this is what he had to say on that. Uh, One of the values of this club is uh, to give a chance to young players who deserve it. And if you have too many uh, players of confirmed status... uh, you're in a difficult position to give a chance to young players and we have the luck uh, to have three, four players who have a top quality and deserve a chance. So to me, that sounds like this. We're moving players on, not necessarily so we can free up wages to pay bigger wages to new signings, not to make space in the squad for new signings, but to give some young players a chance. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. Giving young players an opportunity at a football club is is fantastic, especially when you see a homegrown talent come through and make the grade. It's absolutely brilliant. Everybody loves to see that. But I think in this instance, it is a bit ambitious to expect to keep most of the squad that couldn't do it last season, only add two players. We've only spent in total about £24 million, while others have been spending all over the place, uh, to then try and make the difference with young players who, as talented as some of them might be, probably aren't anywhere near ready yet. The only one to me, and I watched all of preseason, the only one to me who looks like he could step into this first team straight away is Reese Nelson. 17 years of age, he's doing it in the under-23s, he's tearing up trees there, he looks completely and utterly at home, like he's ready to make the step up, like under-23 football is underneath him at this point. It's easy for him, so he's got to make the step up. But he's the only one, I think, 
from the youth system that could realistically make any impact on the first-team squad this season? Do we have a central midfield player who's good enough to play 20, 25 games? No. Do we have a defender, a central defender, a wingback who's ready to play 25, 30 games this season? No. We don't have a striker who can do it. So really the only one is Reese Nelson. And if the plan is to clear the decks and then give four or five young players a chance, maybe we'll see the benefits of that in a couple of seasons. But in the very short term, it's a risk when the Premier League is becoming more and more competitive. Now, Arsene Wenger says a lot of stuff. And what he says is not always what he does. There is plenty of time between now and next Thursday to do business if we are minded to do business. If we're ready to put our hands in our pocket and spend money again. But I'm not convinced that we are. I think we're we're looking at the market, some of the comments that he made during the week about the transfer market, about how difficult it is for English clubs. It just... It seems to me, and I hope I'm wrong, is that he is railing against what the transfer market has become, despite Arsenal as a football club being part of helping to create what that transfer market is. I know we can talk about nation states like Qatar. I know we can talk about oligarchs and everything else. But the the pure fact of the matter is, is that the transfer market in England is distinct from the transfer market pretty much anywhere else. And that is because of the money that Premier League clubs get from television, from uh, prize money, the whole lot. We know that they're wealthy as anything because of the uh, the market that the Premier League has created. The The finances that are in football now are just astronomical. So we can't rail against that. We either get with it or we get left behind, I think. There's more than one way to skin a cat, of course. You can build a team with great young players. You can give them a chance to grow together. You, of course, it can happen. But as the, the other teams become more and more competitive, it becomes more and more difficult to do that. And I just don't see the talent at youth level that can come in and do what needs to be done in that regard. As I said, Reese Nelson, you know, if you ask me tomorrow... Should we play Theo Walcott behind the two strikers or Reese Nelson? I'd be just on for giving Reese Nelson a go. Because I've seen Theo Walcott for 10 years, and I know he's a finisher, and I know he can score goals, but in this particular system, is that where he works? Doesn't seem like it. So if we're going to go all in on Reese Nelson, do it. Let's go all in on Reese Nelson, because at least that's something different, and at least that's something new, and we're giving this talent a chance. But let's not, let's not pretend that there are four, three or four young talented players at this club right now who can make the step up to first team because I don't think, uh, I don't think that's the case. Anyway, look, we'll talk a bit more about transfers and Arsene Wenger and Stoke and Liverpool, uh, the Liverpool game from an Arsenal perspective. But first, let's get a Liverpool perspective on, uh, you know, what they're doing, their club, their summer, their transfers. A lot of it sounds quite similar to what's going on at Arsenal, actually. And uh, joining me to discuss that, I'm delighted to welcome Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Wrap. Hi there. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, I want to ask you about Liverpool's summer. Uh, I know that during the summer there's a huge focus on transfers and Arsenal fans are very much invested in that as well. But I kind of see some parallels between our summer and your summer in that you did some good business early on but have struggled to get some deals over the line since. How how are you viewing what's happened this summer and and the overall transfer business Liverpool have done and tried to do, I guess? 
Well, they've tried to do the, not the important part because the important part would be done. But it seems quite clear that Liverpool are focused on and have been focused on a couple of players, to be honest with you. Van Dijk remains very live. Uh, there's this strange situation with Southampton that, that doesn't look like it's going to get resolved anytime soon. But I actually think it seems clear to me if, if, if you proceed from the point of view that Jurgen Klopp isn't a stupid man, then you can sort of conclude that Liverpool are expecting still to get the Van Dijk deal done. Um, so at the minute, the transfer window feels very sort of four or five out of ten for Liverpool. And I think in general, as football supporters, we can get too fixated on that. Your rivals, Spurs, last season probably had a three or two out of ten window uh, where they got three players in and only really one of them was a success. And yet they added 17 points. Yeah. So it's important not to get too sort of, I think, that, you know, if you've got a solid core, it's important not to get too carried away with that sort of stuff, but it's quite clear where Liverpool need to improve. We need another midfielder. Uh, we need an, we need a, a starting centre-back. We need a midfielder who's able to, I think, break the lines and give a couple of the other players a rest. And that's been brought into greater focus with Lallana's injury and the Coutinho situation. So I'm still hopeful that Liverpool find a way to get two, maybe three players in. But we have a manager who, who, who is not prepared to compromise, and it's you know it is frustrating at times because you yeah. are just sort of thinking you, you want the bodies. But then I've watched Liverpool managers compromise in the past, and if you're not careful, you can very quickly compromise yourself into mediocrity. So yeah. I don't think there's any sort of clear right answer to this. I think it's just a matter of of of, of hoping that Liverpool can find a way to get the to, to get the business done that they need to. You know, I'm sitting here listening to this and it all uh, you could just transpose Arsenal yeah. into this in, in, in many ways. Uh, you know, a manager who's clearly very intelligent, but we too have had difficulties doing deals that we want to get done. Uh, Wenger at Arsenal has this almost omnipotent power because of his longevity there and because of his importance, because the structures aren't there behind the scenes to to really uh, cope with modern football in a way that he is the, 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 I guess, the Wizard of Oz in a way at Arsenal in terms of football knowledge. He is the man in front of and behind the curtain. At, at Liverpool, we hear about this transfer committee. How much influence does Jurgen Klopp have over that? He's been very clear from the moment he comes in. He's got the final say, and I think that that's... That's very much what you can see. Uh, I think that by now Liverpool, under normal circumstances, and by that I mean non-Jurgen Klopp circumstances, they may well have gone to the transfer committee and said, well, we're struggling to, to bring in you know, our first choices, so what, who's beneath that? Whereas I do think it's Jurgen Klopp driven that, you know, that it's it's not as clear as where's the second choice, where's the third choice. And I do actually think that if you were to be working for Liverpool's recruitment team, it would be a little bit demoralising, to be honest with you, that I'm sure they are scouting a lot of players. They're not just all sitting around looking at videos of Van Dijk and Keita and going there, boss. You know, they'll be out <laughs> looking, for, looking for footballers, looking to get deals done, looking to sort of create links and put the hard yards in that transfers do. And yet, so far, you've seen that the manager's only interested in those players. That said, you know, I think it's probably fair to say Solanke is not, you know, Jurgen Klopp's not watched him in the flesh 10 times before Liverpool have bought him. He'll have been brought in by a transfer committee, he'll mm. have been shown videos, and they'll have said, right, we want to get him, and he'll have said, yeah, okay, go on. So I think that, you know, I think that in the in, in specific areas of the pitch, there is the players who, who the manager wants and where he's going to be very, very specific. But I think in other areas, as I say, youth recruitment or recruitment at the bottom of the squad, for want of a better way to phrase it, I think there there is a little bit more leeway. I suspect, you know, Jurgen Klopp hadn't watched Andy Robertson 20 times, <laughs> uh, but he's, 
he, you know, he's gone with he's gone with the people that he's gone with. But when when we are talking about sort of what became 130 million in terms of the bids, the last bids that have been in for both Van Dijk and Keita, 130 million on two players. I think that's where the manager will want to have that final say because it is his neck on the line. Yeah, when you're talking about 130 million pounds, it leads me very nicely to Coutinho and the situation going on there. Now, if we'd gone back 12 months and sat here and discussed Philippe Coutinho, who's a, who's a very good player, but if someone had said uh, he's going to be the subject of a £130 million bid, it was there or thereabouts, I guess you'd know better than I, that Liverpool have rejected from Barcelona, people would have said that that's fucking insane, because uh, I don't think anybody really had any clue just how crazy the market was going to go in such a very short period of time. What is the feeling about the Coutinho situation? Is it Liverpool saying... Right, we're a big club. We we're not going to be bent over for one of our best players. Is it that they know Barcelona have got a lot of money and maybe could get a bit more out of them for that, or is it simply a case of even if you've got 130 million pounds for Coutinho and you're finding it difficult to get more players in, that only in a way kind of adds to the difficulty of it because as soon as everybody knows you've got 130 million pounds burning a hole in your pocket, the prices you have to pay go up as Barcelona are seeing right now. Yeah, I don't. Th- I think that Liverpool's position is they're not going to sell under any circumstances, right. um, and I think that's for reasons one and three that you've just mentioned. I think first, Liverpool as a club had decided that, and again, this throws me back to the Spurs parallel of earlier on that one of the most important things to do this summer was to keep the core players together, and I think that that. I think had it been clear that Barcelona were going to come in for, for, for Coutinho for 130 million on the 22nd of May, then I think he may well have gone, to be honest with you. I think mm. Liverpool might have decided that there's a path through this. But now, with the way in which the window's gone, like you say, the extra money, I don't think it particularly aids Liverpool. And I also think that there was already, you know, listen, we know the way football clubs work, and they should work like this. There should be long-term planning, there should be contingencies, and I think that Jurgen Klopp's contingency planning was he, he was going to buy Naby Keita this summer, have Coutinho, Lallana and Keita with Ben Woodburn coming through, and then get himself into a situation where come next season, next summer, the big money bid comes in for Coutinho, at which point you take the big money bid, you've got Keita and Lallana to play that position, and Ben Woodburn is another season away because he looks like a good prospect, good enough to maybe deputise for that sort of attacking midfield role. And I think that, you know, I think if you've got Jurgen Klopp and got him to write his timeline out honestly he'd have said fine what's precipitated this is the the Neymar situation and the fact that Barcelona have now got this money burning a hole in the pocket but that Coutinho signs his contract earlier in the year and he signs it without a release clause and I my thing on this is if you are Coutinho's agent you surely are speaking to Barcelona who've had little interest in Coutinho and everyone knows it for a while Mm. but you're also saying so this summer then you're not interested and they're saying no we're not at which point then you, you move on with your life and you, you come to the agreement you come to with Liverpool. And it's that the situation has changed. And that's the frustration, I think, for Liverpool. And it's why, yeah, I think that, you know, Liverpool don't want to... There is an element of wanting to act like a big club and act like, you no, know, you can't take our best players. But listen, I think everybody sells. You know, you, you, look at, you, you look at every club, including Barcelona themselves, they've been forced to sell Neymar. But then that has a knock-on effect to Paris Saint-Germain. They've sold Matuidi. And they're looking to shift other players on now as well, supposedly, because because they've got a wage bill issue. Yeah. The point is that everyone ends up selling at some point, and it's not, it shouldn't become some sort of cock-measuring contest because everybody <laughs> has to sell. Sure. Manchester United sold Ronaldo to Real Madrid. Everybody has to sell at some point. Uh, and so I, I think that Liverpool, had, had this been on the cards for the whole summer, 
I think, and also agreed earlier in the summer, then they may well have done it. But now, when they can't bet by the players they want, in the context of a manager who has the players he wants and isn't that prepared to compromise and be flexible, then the actual right sporting decision mm. is to say, no, we'll keep the player. And I think with Liverpool's ownership, there's because of what happened with Hicks and Gillette, there's a desire to be vigilant. And perhaps at times it could be over-vigilant around Liverpool's ownership. But in this instance, what they're not maybe not being given sufficient credit for is they may actually just simply be making not a financial decision, but a sporting one. We're more likely to achieve our sporting aims this season, whether that's top four, whether it's first, whether it's second, whether it's a proper run the Champions League. We're far more likely to do that with Philip Coutinho than without him. Yeah. And I think that's why they've come to that decision. But, you know, to go back to your very first point, we're talking here about 130 million for a lad who's never scored 20 league goals in a season. <laughs> but Neymar went for 119. He only scored 13 in the league last season. And... I think that the other thing that's really damaging this window for everyone, and I do mean everyone, and I even include Manchester City in this, is that no one knows what anyone's worth right now. Mm. Literally, like the, the, all the benchmarks, I think that was a problem at the start of the summer, and now we've got to this point. And there's, I, I speak to, I'm sure you do as well, but I speak to, I speak to uh, supporters from a lot of different clubs because we do a weekend preview show and a weekend review show in amongst our tour player stuff. So I speak to like six supporters of different sides every week. And everybody thinks they need another three. Everybody, <laughs> with the exception maybe of Man City, you think they need another one. Every Man United might need one or maybe two. But everybody thinks they need another three, minimum. Absolutely yeah. minimum up and down the country. So either everyone's bad at transfers or this window's been a really difficult one for all clubs to negotiate. And yeah, you want your club to be the best at any aspect, and that includes recruitment because we know how important it is. Mm. But I just think this summer, it's really difficult because because no one knows what anyone's worth. No one knows what the breaking club breaking point is for a variety of clubs. I mean, it's crazy that we offered Leipzig 70 million for a footballer with a 48 million release next summer, when 70 million's more, more money than Leipzig turned over last year. Yeah. But they've got, and they've gone, no. Just no, and we're going, but it's 70 million quid, and they're going, well, we're not selling them. We're not even negotiating with you at that level. And you're thinking, well, what does this take? But clubs now are, you know, it's such a strange situation. I think the actual end product of this will become that almost every player in Europe will have a release clause. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that's traditional with, with English clubs in particular. We know they're part and parcel of contracts in Spain and Italy and everything else. But you're right. I mean, it is a really difficult market to get your head around because you're looking all of a sudden at Kyle Walker being worth £50 million. And he doesn't kick it in the goal. Well, I mean, you know, he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't even set people up. I mean, you, you look at his figures, his numbers from last yeah. season. I think Kyle Walker's a good player. But, you, you know, if you're in a scenario where he's £50 million quid, then, and that was what was great about the, the Mendy negotiation at Monaco, was that Mendy, was that Monaco turned around and went, well, we think Mendy's better than Walker. And Man City had to sort of shrug their shoulders and go, yeah, you might be right about that. We've got to pay more. Yeah. And that, you know, because no one knows what anyone's worth. But Monaco went, well, you set market value for a fullback with that lad. Well, we think our lad's better. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, there is the issue with English clubs as well, isn't there? Ar- Arsene Wenger has spoken about it a bit, how when English clubs come calling, the, the clubs across Europe put their prices up because of the money that English clubs have, that they've raked in from television, from broadcasting, from prize money. I think Arsenal took in £140 million from the Premier League, TV, TV rights domestic and international, all the prize money and everything else. So, I mean, they have created this environment in which everybody knows that pretty much every club in the Premier League is minted, basically. You go back a few years 
And Champions League qualification was hugely important, not just for the prestige of a club, but for the finances of a club, because the money you got from the Champions League could set you apart, could make the difference between you and a club below you in terms of what you could invest on players, what you could invest on wages. And all of a sudden now, there's just, I won't say it's a level playing field, because obviously some clubs are more uh, financially wealthy or or more financially capable than others, but there's been a sort of an equilibrium I mean, Everton paying £45 million for Gilfie Sigurdsson, and I don't know how much they've spent this summer. You could probably tell me, but it's well over £120, £130 million, which for Everton, when you go back, even just a few years, they were living on the breadline. Very much so. Uh, And I think that... For a lot of these sides now, but what that does is that has a knock-on effect in that they've spent forty-five million on Gilfie Sigurdsson, but they want to recoup something for Ross Barkley. Ross Barkley is a complicated situation, but then mm. that knocks down to Swansea, and Swansea are now paying sixty million quid for Sam Klukas. And I like Sam Klukas; I think he's a really. I thought he was one of the standout How much players the whole last season. But sixty million quid for Sam Klukas? Sixty or sixteen? One six, one six. Don't worry. All right, jeez, I thought it gone really crazy there for a second. No, no, no. But, but sixteen million <laughs> quid for Sam Klukas? Yeah. Who, as I say, I think is a, is a good. The sort of midfielder who in the past would be called a journeyman midfielder and it'd be a bit harsh, but he's very much, he's hard work and he wins his battles, he's tidy, gets himself across the pitch and has got a couple of night, a couple of decent deliveries on mm. him and can play a couple of different positions, but he's now 16 million quid. And, you know, this this is, it is this, so for Swansea, they can basically, with the with the Gilfie Sigurdsson money, buy three Sam Klukas and hope to stay up. And that that's the gamble that they've taken. Whereas you look at West Brom, a 29-year-old centre-half, um, they get a bit of around 20 million quid and they knock it back because they think <laughs> themselves staying in the Premier League will be financially more important. 20 million doesn't sufficiently, uh, doesn't sufficiently box us off enough. It might be that Man City have got to come back with 30 million in order to be able to tempt them when, you know, I mean, I think Johnny Evans is a better, far better player than people think he is. But the flip side of this is, with the greatest respect and will in the world, he's playing in a Tony Pulis side, so all he's got to be able to do predominantly is sit in the, in the, inside his own penalty area and head things away and kick them dead far. Yeah, we're not talking here about the. We're not. We're not. You know, I think he's a good player, but we're not talking about the the regeneration of Mark Lawrenson. Uh And it all it will become harder and harder because clubs can just sort of sit there and say, well, we just think this, this, we're better off with this. And so then, you know, to bring it back to a Liverpool thing, the Van Dyke thing for me is really interesting because if I think Southampton should take the money, I, I would think that anyway. And there's a couple of reasons why, but one reason why is because for Southampton, Southampton actually aren't a side who are likely to be flirting with relegation anytime soon. They've got no, more than enough good players, but they're in, they are in a situation where the best they can hope for realistically this season is coming, say, sixth. So Virgil van Dijk's probably the difference for Southampton between eighth or ninth or sixth. And that's not enough of a difference, if you see what I mean. If he was the difference between 18th and 10th, then I'd be able to go, well, you know what? No one wants to get relegated. Whereas I think that you can sort of make the case that, the, and I, this is why I still think it'll happen, is that the the rational point of view is that Southampton's board finally look at it and go, well, it's the difference between ninth and sixth, boys. It's not the difference between 18th and 10th. And that, but the reason why that player is worth 60 million quid to Liverpool is Jurgen Klopp thinks that he's the difference between possibly between sixth and fourth or between fourth and second or fourth yeah. and first. And that that is when you're at that end of the scale, you know, that's why you pay 60 million pounds for one footballer because you think they will have that much of a profound difference. If Liverpool move up the league table three places because of Virgil van Dijk, they come first. Yeah. If Southampton keep Virgil van Dijk and finish three places higher, well, they come sixth. Let's move on just very quickly, talk a little bit about. Uh, Liverpool and what's happening on the pitch. I watched your first game against uh, Watford and f- from a neutral point of view, it was entertaining. 
from a defensive point of view, you could see that Liverpool still have some issues. And look, I'm on board with that. I, you know, I've watched Arsenal the last couple of games, so I know exactly what's going on there. I mean, would it be fair to say that what's happening at the back? I know you spoke about the need for uh, someone like Naby Keita in midfield, but certainly defending is the big issue for Liverpool at this moment in time and, and the goalkeeping issue as well. I know Mignolet is back in and has, has done well after a, a reasonably difficult period, but that seems to be an area in which Jurgen Klopp hasn't necessarily been able to affect the change perhaps as much as people would like. Yeah, I think that there's... I mean, I think it's strange. I think I think playing centre-half for Liverpool is no battle of laughs uh, because of the setup, <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, I think that we can talk a lot about about specific individuals within defence. But I think it'll either take a genuinely special centre-back and, you know, to go back to Van Dijk, if he comes in, we'll see whether or not it's him. I don't necessarily think there's a one-man panacea to this. I think Liverpool are set up in a manner which will leave them exposed at times in games. Mm. And I think that there's a separate issue then around sort of the way in which set-pieces are defended, and that's that's partially because Liverpool, again, the way in which the side that the manager picks, it's not very tall. Yeah. It's not as tall as you'd think. You know, Liverpool are not... I'm, I'm, and you could see that difference in that Watford game especially because they're huge. They're the biggest, heaviest team in the country. They're an absolutely enormous set of lads. So, yeah, what I'm saying here is, I suppose, that there is a... There is individual questions and individual mistakes, but then there's also set-up and the extent to which players are left exposed. And I think that Liverpool can defend a little bit better. And it's worth remembering that Liverpool conceded 42 goals last season. The eventual champions conceded 33. So that's a nine-goal difference. It's not, it's not, Liverpool didn't concede 55. They conceded 42. So Liverpool have also kept five clean sheets in the last six Premier League games, you know, going back into last season mm. as well. So at times we can overstate this because it looks panicked and because... The way Liverpool play, and I was watching, I was at the game last night against Hoffenheim. The way Liverpool play, it does not afford anyone any degree of security, both on the pitch or in the crowd, and that <laughs> that's a really interesting thing. So I, I've watched, you know, Rafa Benitez's European sides. Liverpool went through against Hoffenheim six three on aggregate. If Liverpool, if a Rafa Benitez side had gone to Hoffenheim and won one nil, and then brought them back to Anfield and won two nil, and gone through by three goals, literally the same goal difference, the same margin that Liverpool went through against Hoffenheim. Everyone would talk about it being controlled, it being a controlled, calm, classic European performance. Yeah. Well, we've gone through by a margin there of three goals, but everything about it felt hectic and and, and, and like a whirling dervish. Uh, and that is something which I think we're all just going to have to get used to. And, and that's again, that that doesn't sound to supporters. That doesn't sound great when you've got a crowd full of people. Even the lads who are my age now, I'm mid thirties. You know, I grew up watching Julia and Benitez both domestically and in Europe. Where it's fair to say to differing degrees, but the first aim was was you ensure that you don't concede certainly away from home. Mm. And then you've got you know and and and, and those who are older than me, Fagan and Paisley. And again, you know, you make sure you win your battles. You're responsible. The midfield is an area that you control the game from, and you go from there. The the football played by firstly Brendan Rodgers and now Jurgen Klopp, it is it makes the pitch bigger, it's more hectic. So when you talk about Liverpool's defending, you feel like you're saying, "Good Lord, you know this is it's it's too open, it's too exposed." But to use that Watford game as an example, Liverpool should make it four two. And there was loads of people post match who said who said if you concede three away from home, you should win any game. But Liverpool score three away from home, partially because of the way they approach the game, which makes them more likely to concede three and puts more pressure on the defenders. Um, 
there's ruthlessness questions for Liverpool at both ends of the pitch. Even now, even when Liverpool could score 90 goals this season, even last night against Hoffenheim, Liverpool should have sc- shouldn't have scored four. They should have scored six. Uh, they have a number of very good chances in order to absolutely just... I, I thought they killed the game anyway, but to genuinely kill it. Yeah. And against Watford, Liverpool should make it 4-2. They've got all the momentum, everything's going for them. They're completely on top, and they have two or three really good chances after making it 3-2. And if they make it 4-2, it probably finishes 4-2 or 5-2. What happens in the Premier League, in all leagues, if you're if there's one goal in it with 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 five minutes to go, you're going to get a kitchen sink job, and then you've got to be able to deal with that. And this is where Liverpool being brittle is a problem, and where maybe individuals are a problem or set pieces are a problem. And this is where you look like you defend badly. Yeah. If you defend badly in key moments, you defend badly, and that's what they've got to work on. Basically, both taking games away from te- away from opposition teams, and then when it comes down to key moments, seeing the game out. And to be fair to them, they did that pretty well against Crystal Palace. Mm. I have to say, you know. Again, I'm coming back, and it sounds very Arsenal. A lot of this sounds very like Arsenal to me. Just very finally, um, last season Liverpool got into the top four. They got there ahead of Arsenal by a single point. And again, something that might sound familiar to Arsenal fans is that you guys made pretty hard work of it. It looked like it was a a fairly uh, done deal, but obviously it went right to the final game of the season. Making hard work work of it is something that that we do as well. But you didn't have European football last season, which of course allows your squad more time to rest, more preparation time between Premier League games. This time around, you've got Champions League. What is the realistic aim for this season? Is it is it to maintain the position in the top four and have a good run in the Champions League? Is it to get closer to the title? Is the squad big enough to cope with all the football that you're going to have to play? Well, I think he needs another three players, as I said before, a centre-half and maybe another attacker and, and another attacking midfielder. But on the sort of the wider, you know, the idea of what's acceptable, for me, I always think, yeah, and this has come through from some shows we've done, but I think Liverpool should always target to play 28-60 points. I think if that's your target, and that should be Liverpool's league targets every season, if you don't play 28-60 and 60 points, then you're likely, not inevitably, because things can go wrong, but you're likely to finish in the top four. Uh, and you're also you've got a, you've got a chance of of winning the, winning the title if you don't play 28 and 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 and, and 60 points that should be, that that that's a springboard mm. to go from and I think that that you know and then to a certain extent you know if, if you're a manager it then sort of comes down to your players it comes down to the energy levels it comes down to the crowd it comes down to the fixture list it comes down to bits and pieces of luck and people don't like that in football but it does. And, you know, over the course of a season, the aim of a league table is to sort of work out who's better than the other. Well, I thought we were better than Man City last season. I thought we were the third best team in the country once, once all was said and done. But, you know, we ended up a couple of points behind them. I thought we were, and I'll be, you know, I'll be, your, your, your listenership might not like this, but I thought we were significantly better than Arsenal last season. But because of inconsistencies, because of poor performances, because of luck, it ends up being only one point in it. But I thought, with the exception of the cup final, so well done on that. But I <laughs> thought that, you know, when Liverpool, Liverpool managed to play very, very good football, much more often than Arsenal last season, but also managed to drop daft points. But then on that, you know, from when last season when you came to Anfield, from then until the end of the season, there's all this talk that we crawled over the line, but we actually only lost one game. Uh, we drew away at Man City and we we drew at home to Bournemouth and to Southampton and we won all the other games. Yeah, and that you know that and that's from that's from the fourth of March. You know, so we're talking there, including the Arsenal game. That's the fourth of March. So we're talking there about eleven, twelve games. But again, because of the way something feels rather than the way it actually is, the feeling around Liverpool, the feeling around the wider football world was like Liverpool were finding it really hard, and it was hard. And that you know, it should be hard. It's it's elite sport, but. 
simultaneously, that's a really good running. The problem that Liverpool had is that Man City actually had a really good running and Arsenal actually had a really good running. And elsewhere, Manchester United were doing well and then finally had to shift the focus over. And my point about all this is there's a team that's coming to Anfield on Sunday who are capable of, in this league, going at two points a game. And we've now got six sides who, who, if I said to you, you know, that any of those six sides broke 80 points this season, and to your listeners, well, none of them would go, you know, I'll come back in time and, 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 and you know, any one of these sides breaks 80 points, and I can guarantee that. You wouldn't go, well, that's mad. You'd go, yeah, I can see how that happens. Mm. And so what all this comes down to now is they're the fine, fine margins. So when you're sort of talking about ambitions, I think... I think that, you know, I want to see Liverpool challenge for the title. I want to see them have a proper European run. I think we're capable of that. Uh, I think we're capable of beating anyone home and away, home or away. Uh, and I mean anyone. I include Real Madrid. I could see us getting a result in the Bernabeu. Uh, I could also see, see us getting done 5-2 in the Bernabeu. But I could see us getting a result in the Bernabeu. And that's, that's sort of what you can ask for. The extra games are going to make it harder. But, well, that's, you can't moan about the reward. Yeah, you can't. You know, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous situation. There's, 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 I very rarely like Shankly quotes, but there's a, a really good one which goes something along the lines of, you know, pressure. Pressure isn't going for the championship. Pressure isn't in the cup final. Pressure's working down the pit. Pressure's trying to re- trying to stop relegation on forty shillings a week. And yeah, the, the, this is the reward. He says, and he's right. So last night against Hoffenheim, you know, it should be enjoyed. It should be enjoyed by the players, by the manager. We go on from there. Hopefully, we get a really good group. We have a huge laugh. It sh- it's the reward. Yeah. And and if we don't stop to go, and, and this is where I think in general, the modern football supporter, we're all guilty of it at times, because football doesn't stop. We actually don't enjoy bits and pieces of it as much as we should. We should enjoy Liverpool in the Champions League. Arsenal should enjoy the prospect this season of, you know, there should be the expectation of getting to the last four of the Europa League. It should be a massive laugh for everyone, and then maybe winning the Europa League, which would be absolutely absolutely terrific. Yeah. And it'd be a genuine achievement and not something to apologise for or go, oh, well, we're in the Champions League and we get knocked out by Bayern Munich. The games of football, let's just cut loose and enjoy them. And we're all talking about sides here who are capable of playing great football. And that's the other thing that I want to see Liverpool do this season. And you saw it last night for the third goal against Hoffenheim. Liverpool can play some great stuff, so let's watch them do it. All right, sounds good. Uh, Neil, uh, we'll uh, wait and see what happens on Sunday. I expect with both defences it's going to be bit of a shootout but we'll uh, we'll see how it goes good luck for the season and we'll chat to you again soon thanks thanks for having me thank you very much indeed to neil from the anfieldrap.com uh, when i said good luck i didn't mean for sunday obviously i wish him terrible luck on sunday well not him personally uh, his team um i think we might need for them to have some terrible luck if we're going to do uh, the business but we're going to talk more about that and more arsenal in a couple of moments time uh, right after this Blimey! Oh! 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 Blimey! 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 One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Thierry Henry at his funky best. That's his uh, new single. Ooh, blimey. Check it out if you get a chance. It's the... uh, The sound of the summer. Right. There's a lot going on at Arsenal, even two games into the brand new season. So with me to discuss all that and more, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, Tim Stillman. Hi, Tim. Hello there. Let me start by talking about something you were discussing on the Arsenal Vision podcast. I was quite interested to hear you talk about Arsene Wenger and the way that, you know, good managers do this, good managers do that, and average managers create problems for themselves. And you'd sort of put Arsene Wenger into the the category of a manager who is now creating problems for himself. We saw imbalanced team selections in the first couple of games. Certainly in the first game, you could understand it a little bit better than the... The, the second game against Stoke where the omission of Per Mertesacker is still giving me a headache. But do, do you think in some ways that it's not necessarily just team selection, that the problems that he is creating for himself are problems that the club has also created for themselves in terms of certain player contracts and those kind of things. So what's happening off the pitch with the players is having an impact on what he's doing on the pitch with certain players. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a... a double-edged sword at the moment because the team isn't fantastically coached I don't think um, and it's not well managed either from an administrative point of view and having all of these contracts going at the same time I mean it, that, that's just and this this idea that Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain good player though he is and a player I like has all of a sudden turned into Garincha because we want him to sign a new deal and he's totally indispensable and undroppable and we can't you know, countenance, even substituting him is, is is all quite bizarre. And it feels like it's that's because of the contract situations, you know, with with someone like Alexis Sanchez and probably Mesut Ozil as well. I think you could take some distance and say, well, these guys, they probably can attract, you know, some of the biggest names in Europe, um, although it doesn't look like Ozil's doing that at the moment. And, you know, I'm, I'm fully behind the decision to let Sanchez run his contract down because mm. I don't think we can really replace him. But with someone like Chamberlain, it's just, it feels a bit weird, particularly because we didn't even think he was worth a contract renewal until this summer. And he's gone in, you know, in the space of a summer, he's gone from a player we weren't even sure we wanted to keep to this, 
you know, great indispensable player that we have to shoehorn into the team at all costs. And that's, yeah. that's not, I'm not having a go at Oxlade himself there. He's, he's doing the job he's being put in to do. But it's, it's hard not to think that there's some kind of, there's something quite political behind this. And that, you know, Arsene just, he, he doesn't really seem keen on making any decisions um, at the moment. And so it's all very... Yeah, and so, yeah. and so, like I said, he's kind of causing problems for us tactically that I just don't think are necessary at the moment because we're not injury hit. Um, and it's it's difficult to reconcile um, what he's doing at the moment. And I think um, with Arsene, it's weird because all at once he gets too much disrespect because he's been here for so long and you know what it's like if you're in a relationship with someone for a long time, you know certain things piss you off more after 22 years than they do after two years. So I can't possibly in, comment on that. <laughs> so in one respect, he gets too much disrespect. But in another respect, there's a lot. he still has a lot of reverence, I think. So when he makes these bizarre decisions, which for me are becoming increasingly difficult to reconcile, and maybe he's got some grand sophisticated plan that I can't decipher, which I'm willing to accept if someone's got some theories, but... And then when he says stuff like, oh, I put Theo Walcott on to blast crosses into Giroud. Mm. And there's quite a lot of whataboutery goes on. And we try, because it's Arsene Wenger and he has this great track record and this great reverence, we try and think, well, no, there must be something behind this. And, oh, yeah, he just says stuff after we lose. Ignore him. Yeah. And I don't know. It's becoming, over the last few months, I've started to kind of come around to the idea that maybe he's just not doing a very good job and he doesn't know what he's doing as much as he used to yeah um, and that there's a lack of clarity there and that there isn't this great big plan that we just can't pursue <laughs> you know i think the oxley chamberlain situation really sums it up in a way because he has spoken countless times about even towards the end of last season he said you know it would do as big damage if oxley chamberlain left and it got to the point with him that his his representatives were leaking stuff to the papers to say that they haven't had a uh, contract offer for him to turn down. And even if they got one, then he wouldn't, he wouldn't be interested in signing it because he feels undervalued. Now he's talking about him being, you know, somebody might want to build his team around to an extent that, that, uh, you know, in, in six months, he's gone from not offering him a contract to saying he's indispensable to saying that uh, he's going to be one of the big English players in the future. And mm. I, I I can't get my head around it. If that's the way you think about Oxlade-Chamberlain, you tie him down to a new deal 18 months ago. You don't mm. leave it till he's got 12 months left on his contract. Now, we believe or we understand that there was supposed to be a meeting between Oxlade-Chamberlain and Arsene Wenger and Ivan Gazidis, and I assume his agents was going to take place uh, on Thursday uh, of this week. I mean, we won't know what's going to or what's happened in that. But if it seems likely he is unwilling to sign a new deal because he's not... Uh, it's not a money thing. It's about where he's going to mm. play. It's about how often he's going to play there. If he's refused that, let's say in that meeting, this is the crunch meeting, I'm guessing, because you, you yeah, know, yeah. it's got to the point now where it's got to, it's now or never with the transfer window coming to, to a close. If he doesn't want to sign a new deal, I mean, what, what do the club do? I mean, do they play him on Sunday against Liverpool? Do they count on his professionalism in that regard? Or, you know, can the club afford to lose a player like Oxlade-Chamberlain for free in the same way that they can lose a player like Alexis Sanchez or Mesut Ozil? 
No, no, I don't think so. It's 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 really really odd. I mean, it should have been sorted um, quite a long time ago. But and, and again, not to declare open season on Oxley Chamberlain player at all. No, I, uh, only yeah. only at Arsenal is you know. I'm doing Chamberlain a disservice by calling him a squad player. Um, he's probably a bit more than that. He's kind of a high-level utility player, probably sim- similar to Giroud. Not quite in the first starting eleven, but probably in the 12 or 13. But only at Arsenal does like the idea of churning your squad players seem to generate such fear. You know, this is just what happens normally. And, you know, it just looks to me like Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and Arsenal has come to a natural end. They're both at cross-purposes now. Yeah. He wants to play in central midfield, which is fine if that's what he thinks that he wants and that's where he thinks he wants to try and establish his career at his age. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. And if Arsene Wenger rates him half as much as he says, then, you know, play him in the position that he thinks he wants to play in. But if he doesn't think, he, which he clearly doesn't, he doesn't think he's going to be a central midfielder, then we're just at cross purposes and it's come to a natural end and you say thank you very much, you take the money that's on offer and you go and replace. This is just what normal, that's just normal business. <laughs> that is normal squad churn. It's not Alexis Sanchez who got 30 goals and 14 assists last season and who we can't coming into his peak years and that we can't really replace. It's 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 a high level squad player and if if we find that so difficult to replace, then what are we gonna do, you know, next <laughs> summer when there's gonna be three first team players potentially going on Bosman's in a World Cup year with nothing coming in? I mean yeah. it it just like I say, it's difficult to reconcile that there's any kind of plan and that we're not just making this up as we go along. It it kind of Arsenal for the last couple of years has felt like, to me, a, a shopping trolley kind of slowly rolling down a hill towards a dual carriageway. <laughs> and everyone's just closing their eyes and hoping that it doesn't collide with a lorry. Yeah, It just doesn't feel like there's a cogent plan tactically with the squad. And, and you know, with all due respect, being bent over by Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain is not a fantastic look for Arsenal. No, I mean, I think the key word that you used there was normal. And I don't think Arsenal really is a normal football club. Not that football clubs are the the bastion or the beacon of normality in in no. any sense in business or sport or or just general life. They're these kind of bizarre worlds unto themselves. But Arsenal's is certainly a, a strange world. Um, and you know, when you have that conversation with Arsenal fans about, you know, if you say something on Twitter like, "Yeah, I'd take thirty five million for Chamberlain from Chelsea," and everyone goes. No, how can like how can you countenance this? Well, you and know why don't you? I, it's almost like a Stockholm syndrome. We've become so I, I, inured I, I, to the idea that we could replace someone well, like that. I, yeah, no, I, I I think part of it stems from the lack of faith that that thirty five million pounds yeah. will be reinvested. If you were to say to somebody, take thirty five million pounds for Oxide Chamberlain. I can understand why there would be reservations because people will say, well, what are we going to do with that £35 million? If you said, take £35 million for Oxlade-Chamberlain and we are definitely going to reinvest that money and maybe a little bit more in a player who can do more than what Oxlade-Chamberlain has done for the team over the last seven seasons, then I think people will be much more on board with that. I think the Chelsea thing has has an impact as well. But when we look at the overall picture... Next summer, Arsenal have nine players, some of them fringe members of the first-team squad, it has to be said, but there are nine players out of contract in 2018 and a further eight players out of contract in 2019. How do we, how do we tally the things? Because people will say on the one hand, look, 
Arsenal find it difficult to get rid of players because they give them long contracts on good wages and their players are just going to sit around and see out their contracts because why would you move to work more and get paid less? Mm. But at the same time, you have to try and maintain some measure of consistency in your squad. And even going back a few years, there was a period where we got pretty much every player in the squad tied down and signed up Mm. for uh, a fairly lengthy period so we weren't running into situations like we had with Nasri like we had with Van Persie in the final year of their contracts where the club was really left uh, you know under the circumstances with no choice but to sell them whether you agree with that or don't agree with that or where they Mm. went that was that was really the situation and now we're heading towards something that's basically the opposite yeah, yeah. I mean, it's on one hand you can you can argue that's that's just the natural cycle of things. Um, you know, for example, Spurs at the moment are in a great position with contracts, but in two years, um, a lot of those players will be knocking on the door again, and, and they might be in a similar scenario. But but the kind of thing is as well as how how many of them feed into one another. So you know, we're going to be sitting down with a player like Aaron Ramsey, and Ramsey's going to be looking around and going, well. Why would I commit if, like next summer, you know the door opens and all these all these players rush out? Why why would I commit? And then that creates reticence with with other players yeah. that you want to stay on, on two to three years. Um, particularly guys, yeah, like Ramsey, who's about what twenty five now, who's going to be his next contract is going to you know be dealing with his peak years. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly. You know, he might not necessarily fit into the Arsenal team right now as much as we'd all like to. But if we lose Mesut Ozil, um, I bet he would. And, you know, that kind of future proofing becomes really, really difficult. And to an extent, this is kind of just the world we live in with contracts where pretty much every two years they're up for renewal. Um, but it's, it is it is very, very worrying. It does feel like an iceberg. And that's why, for me, selling someone like Chamberlain just makes a lot of sense to do that now and get that money now and spread some of the pain rather than having yeah. this summer where we don't do a lot and then give ourselves loads to do next summer when it's going to be a World Cup year, when we're going to lose players on freeze, um, you know, big players as well. And it just makes sense to try and spread some of that workload to me. I, I just feel like, you know, next summer, mm. you know, it, it, it feels feels like an iceberg is coming yeah. um, a little bit and I don't have an awful lot of faith that the club are planning for this it, it just looks like they're going day to day at the moment yeah Ramsey is going to be 27 in December so you know right. the next contract he signs is going to be the last big contract of his mm. career really so that's going to be one that he's going to have to consider just one final thing before we move on from Oxley Chamberlain uh, it's just uh, Arsene Wenger when he was talking about him at the press conference he said uh, you know we've invested a lot of time and money into uh, and confidence and money into players like Alex Chamberlain he said for me they have a responsibility for the future of this club. It's almost like trying to guilt trip him into signing a new deal. And if that's what you're resorting to in public, you have to wonder what's going on uh, behind the scenes. But let me ask you another question. He also was asked about uh, rumours, and I know this time of year is replete with rumours, but Shkodran Mustafi has been linked with Inter Milan and Juventus. 
and he was asked about it in his press conference. Now, if we take what he says about Alexis Sanchez at face value, I want him to stay. He is going to stay. He's been down the line straight on that. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, I want him to stay at the club. You know, we, we, we want to build around Oxlade-Chamberlain. With Mustafi, he was a bit more like, well, you know, stuff stuff happens in the in the last seven days yeah. of the window. It happens quite quickly, so you have to make decisions, etc., etc. What does that say about what he thinks about Mustafi, a player that he spent and the club spent £35 million on last summer, just less than 12 months ago. It, it does seem very, very strange, doesn't it? Unless something has happened behind the scenes that we're not privy to, which seems yeah. likely if there's any legs in this. But I mean, with and that must have developed very, very quickly because we only sold Gabriel less than a week ago. So all of that, if, you know, if, if that is indeed the case, which it, it does kind of seem that there are there are legs on this story must have developed very quickly and and we can only guess as to how um but it what what's kind of what interests me quite a lot is a lot of these players that um from the information we have have been bought via the stats dna software venga you know he he's a bit of a hoarder with uh with footballers uh recently he likes he likes to hang on to to players for probably too long, but some of the guys he's bought through stats or that have been bought through the stats DNA thing, he seems quite fond of jettisoning. Um, you know, Gabriel's gone in two and a half years. There's rumours that he was open to letting El Nenny go. There's now rumours that he's open to let, to let um, Mustafi go. Um, he bought Xhaka and still doesn't really seem to know what to do with him. Yeah. Don't know how much it was involved in buying Colasinac, but. I just can't imagine that when they sat down with Kolasinac, they said, our vision for you next year is to play centre-half <laughs> alongside the other left-back. I just can't imagine that that was what was said. So it's, it seems like something quite odd is going on behind the scenes. Um, it, it feels like, and you know, we're speculating, which is always dangerous, but it kind of feels like not everyone is on the same page. And it almost feels to me, like Wenger's making a bit of a point um, with some of with some of these signings mm. because you know some of the guys he's kept around for for such a long time and then some of the more recent buys who to me have all looked fairly decent. I, d- I don't think we've bought a uniformly bad footballer for su- for some time now. Yeah, we bought players that we don't know what to do with and that haven't fitted in. But I, I don't think we haven't bought anyone like Schmack who I've just thought, my God, he's terrible. Or Sylvester, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it it just I don't know. It just feels very, very weird. As um, if there are power struggles, almost. Yeah, yeah. It it does feel a little bit like that, and and there, and therefore you just say, you know, you ask yourself if if that is indeed the case, then why the contract from from both sides? Um, really, what, why would the club want to keep him and? Why would he want to stay if that is indeed the case? Or, it all feels or, very strange. Yeah, it does. Or indeed, if the power struggle has seen one man come on top, what if the man who was at the wrong end of that is quite seems quite happy to stay as well? You know yeah, that there must yeah. be there must be people who, if there was this issue at board level, for example, where some of them wanted him to stay and some of them didn't want him to stay, the ones who yeah. didn't want him to stay are now just, well, okay. Yeah, just taking the money, just taking basically. It. Yeah, just, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I don't think that's necessarily healthy, particularly if uh, people in key positions are not going to work together as well as they should. 
I'm not saying that anyone yeah. is out to nobble the other one or to do damage to the other one, but you know, you could look at certain decisions that have been made uh, over the course of the summer, uh, where perhaps the influence of one man has usurped the influence of another. And uh, you know, I don't think it, I don't think it is necessarily healthy. Um, so yeah, no, I've, I've thought that about some of the appointments as well. I, I have wondered, you know, how much it was Arsene's decision or, quote, Arsene and the club's decision as a kind of, look, if you're getting this new contract, you're going to take some of the medicine. I did think um, the Jens Lehmann one was really, really interesting because, you know, we, we all hear that Colney is this crash and it's too comfortable. And then to bring in the guy who is probably the most assertive and possibly even most divisive player Wenger's ever had on the training ground. Yeah, I don't know that. That feels a little bit pointed to me. Um, you know, I don't know. If, if that's Arsene saying, recognising that, then fine. But I don't know. It just feels a bit to me like, right, now we're going to get an ex-player as a coach and we're going to get like the biggest bastard you ever managed. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But that, that felt, again, a bit like a statement. Yeah. I mean, again, it seems to me that, that Wenger would have final say over who he... Mm has or who he adds to his coaching staff. And I think that probably is true if you go down a little bit as well um, and maybe look at the academy appointment. Uh, I think that his power came out on top there. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, look, we'll have to wait and see. And obviously when all these things are happening in the background, when all these contracts need to be done, I mean, I think if anything, this summer has illustrated above all else is that we do need to have in place better structures at board level or at administration level, I guess you'd say, in order to make these deals or in order to do the things, the dirty work, behind-the-scenes work that needs to be done, like contract renewals, like uh, players coming in, like players going out. You know, as it stands, it seems what? It's Dick Law, Arsene Wenger, and Ivan Gazidis doing all that work. And people have had questions about their ability to deal with the... Maybe maybe we could be kind and say deal with the sheer volume of work that that entails because doing transfers both in and out is complicated business. Um, and I think we've seen again that we're not necessarily on top of it the way that we should be. No, no, I think that's right. Did you um, – there was, there was an, an interview that was taken from the Arsenal magazine with Wenger on the, on the websites there. It's actually very interesting. He wasn't talking so much about that side of the club, but – he was talking about all the information he receives from mm. data analysts and video scouts and stuff like that. And I think the question was something like, you know, how's the game changed since you became a manager? And uh, he, he was kind of implying, he was saying, you know, I get all this information about the players' heart rates and, you know, that like the most finite detail. And, I, you know, I have to take all of this information in. And I, I don't know, it felt like he was hinting that, you know, it was almost too much, almost, too, you know, too many cooks spoiling the broth kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was quite an interesting quote, um, actually. I, you, you could take it either way. He could have been saying it as a, as a good thing or just as an example of how, a harmless example of how the game's developed. But again, it kind of felt like he was making a point. Mm. The, the other thing that struck me when he was speaking at his press conference on Thursday, and I spoke about it in the first part of the show, was how he... He talked about how incomings and outcomings, he said, will happen, then corrected himself and said, can happen. Um, 
but he spoke about the need uh, to respect the values of the club and part of the values of the club was to give young players a chance and he said you know we've got f- three or four young players coming through who deserve a chance and I was racking my brains to try and think of who those <laughs> those four players were and the only one that really stands out for me is Reese Nelson the one yeah. who looks close to being ready for first team football and by that I mean some Europa League I mean some um, yeah. uh, EFL or League Cup whatever the hell it's called now the Caprabo Carabao Cup um, you know he's the only one that really um, stands out for me but it, it also struck me that perhaps the club's philosophy or plan if there is one and I know we've been talking about how hard it is to see whether there's a plan or not is to clear the decks and to give those young players a chance rather than buy. Yeah, I mean, that would make some sense if um, if we weren't so intent on holding on to players like Jack Wilshire and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. It's, again, it's just, it's a weird thing to say that, you know, on one hand, Chamberlain's like indispensable, we must keep him. And then a guy like Reese Nelson, who's a fairly similar sort of player, plays a fairly sort of similar positions, looks like he possibly could play wing-back, but is is a wide player. I mean, that just doesn't reconcile at all. And this is kind of what I was talking about earlier. We sometimes scratch our heads with some of Wenger's comments and some of his decisions and think, oh, what, what, why is he saying that? Is that, you know, is that pointed? Is that is that code for something? Mm. Is that, and like I said, I'm just coming around to the idea that he's, he's just talking crap, um, to be quite <laughs> honest. Because, you know, none of those players, even Reese Nelson before pre-season, wasn't someone that was on anyone's radar at all. Um, and, you know, he looks like he's got a fair bit of momentum behind him and he looks like someone that could, yeah, that could be involved in, you know, the the what, what's-its-name cup and the Europa League yeah. and maybe and, and things like that. But, yeah, I, I don't see this, like, massive crop of youngsters either and there's no evidence from what we've seen so far that he does either. And yet he he seems, you know... He wants to hold on to Wilshire. He wants to hold on to Chamberlain. He wants to hold on to these players, but at the same time, he you know I, I would have a fair amount of respect, for example, if he did just clear the decks, got rid of Wilshire, got rid of Chamberlain, didn't replace them through the transfer market, and said no, I believe in like these young players. Um, you know, a bit like uh, the whole like Project Youth thing yeah. um, on the stadium. In the stadium years, you know, you can argue about whether that was a good decision, whether that was the right way to go about it. But it was a plan and it was something he clearly believed in. Yeah. And it was something to get behind. And that's that's the thing at the moment. It feels like we've taken a step back where I can't be bothered to like argue about starting lineups and formations anymore because I feel like we're a step back from even that. I just think to myself, you know, whether it's three at the back, four at the back, seven at the back, no one at the back. Whatever, I just want, I just want something, a sign that Arsene Wenger believes in something and he's going for something. Yeah, you know, a bit like in those austerity years where, yeah, it wasn't, it probably wasn't quite right, but it was something to get behind. And I just, I don't feel that at the moment. He just makes all of these contradictory statements and these contradictory team lineups. It's just, 
it just all seems so muddled. Mm. It's like we're swimming, you know, we're out at sea and we're swimming for shore, but each time we turn around, it's a different shore or there's no yeah. shore at all. You know, I, I agree with you. I said something similar on the blog the other day that like if if we just said, fuck it, fuck the transfer window, let's go all in on some really talented youths, uh, then fine. I'd, be, I'd yeah. be on board with that because at least it is something clear. There's a vision for it, whether it works or not. I, I, you know, I would have my doubts obviously but you know at least it would be something whereas we're playing this it's like we're playing three or four different instruments all at the same time you know it's hard yeah. it's hard to get your head around uh, what we're going to do but obviously a week to go before the end of the uh, the transfer b- uh, window um do you expect any further arrivals i i haven't got a clue uh, right <laughs> uh, what's I... your gut feeling i mean seriously my my gut feeling is is no um, and yeah. I, obviously, I'd like to be wrong, but my my gut feeling is that no, there won't be any more. Yeah, same with me. I I don't think there will be any. If there are, it's something. It's going to be like you know, natural Monreal style transfer that no one knew anything about until six p.m. on deadline day. I can't a, see a Mesodosal style transfer, indeed. Well, yeah, well, yeah. I I don't think we'll go that big uh, no. personally, but no, I I don't think um, anyone will come in. He, he seems very wedded to this idea that everyone has to go before he can buy, which again I don't really understand because if you're sinking, if you're willing to sink the cost of Alex Oxlade Chamberlain on a free, um, it doesn't. Again, it strikes me slightly inconsistent to then start quoting economics and saying we can't possibly buy again until until we sell it's it's again a weird muddled attitude i am um, i i don't think there will be i would really really like um a central midfielder i think we've we haven't cracked that area of the pitch and we've got a lot of decent players there but perhaps not you know that that real reference player um, to knit things together, yeah. But I, I'm not sure I see it. No, I think I think everyone eventually will go. I think Gibbs and Debushi and Perez, they'll all probably go on deadline day, and that will be it. Yeah, yeah. I think we need that central midfielder too, particularly as I think sooner rather than later we are going to go back to a back four. And in order to really get the best out of the players that we have in this side, I think we need that presence in in midfield and in a midfield three. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'd love to see it, but I'm not necessarily confident. But look, we can can discuss that uh, on a podcast in the future. Now, we're playing Liverpool this weekend. Uh, They'd... uh, uh, A good win in midweek against Hoffenheim. Mm. Attack-wise, they look very... They look very good. They've got some uh, very exciting players, uh, some dangerous players, as we know. Uh, they beat us twice last season. Anfield is a place where I feel we have, since that 5-1, got a bit of a, a psychological issue with that place. Um, we, we've For a good, good number of years, we had a, a good record there, but it feels like yeah. since that game, we've, we've got a, an issue that's very much ingrained in the DNA of this squad and certainly of the manager last season when we went there. Was that the day that he dropped Alexis for 45 minutes? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that was, <laughs> that was another big uh, clusterfuck. It, it feels to me like this could be something of a shootout, but with Lauren mm-hmm. Koscielny back, with Alexis Sanchez back, are you expecting to see a more balanced team for the Liverpool game than we did for uh, the Stoke game, for example. You know, the yeah. three actual centre-halves, even if one of them is is Nacho Monreal, uh, Kolasinac over on the left-hand side, and one of Oxlade-Chamberlain and Bellerin. For me, Bellerin on the right-hand side. Uh, yeah. From there, at least we would have a platform. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I, I think potentially what I imagine should be our first choice eleven will be pretty much available to us um, if we played, you know, Monreal, Mustafi, Koscielny, Bellerin, Kalasinac, Ramsey, Xhaka, and then Alexis is available. Özil's available. Lacazette's there. So potentially, I think what looks like our most balanced team will be available. Um, I still think he'll muddle the wing backs. I still think he'll try and muddle through with Chamberlain and Bellerin and particularly with the wide players Liverpool have got, the wide attackers they've got. I think that would be suicide, but um, there we go. <laughs> um, but I, I think really, obviously, the bi- the biggest problem for us is, um, you know, Liverpool's biggest strength forcing you to turn the ball over in front of your own 18-yard box has been you know, our downfall um, already this season, even against teams that don't really press you that much. It's just been mm. pretty careless play. So, you know, I do worry. I, I'm not I'm not really sure out of our central midfielders who's going to deal with that. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think any of them are particularly reliable under that sort of pressure, um, whoever we play. So that does worry me. But if we can get past that first press, they're definitely there to be got at. I wouldn't be surprised to see Giroud start. Um, because really? I think, yeah. yeah, I think he'll want to try and... A little bit what he tried to do in March, um, try and go over the press um, a little bit. So stick it up to the big man, let him hold it up and get others involved. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that um, at all. Mm. And if, you know, if... If Giroud is playing up front, um, I'm fine with. Change. I, I, I too prefer, still prefer Bellerin as a as a wing back. I think he's a more complete player. But if Giroud's up front, I'm kind of I'm all right with Chamberlain there because he he chucks a good cross in. And uh, when you've got Giroud up front, that's that's not a bad thing at all. Um, but I I do worry about this one. I, I think what we've got to try and get to our advantage is the last three or four times we've been there, the first 20 minutes, we've just been steamrolled. Yeah. And um, we've really got to try and stop that. And not least because Liverpool played, you know, they've played two more games than us this season. They played on Wednesday night and they played in a very high octane fashion. And I know it's early in the season, but we should have a bit more in our legs than them. And if we can not only ride that first 20 minutes out, if we can perhaps take the game to them. Yeah. And I think this, this has also been a problem with the kind of really muddled starting lineups is we have really slow, um, kind of not very cohesive starts to games like the first half and the second half. It takes a while to get things going because nobody seems to know what they're doing. And um, we, we've really got to avoid that. And I think the best way to do that is just to pick the most balanced team. But um, hey, what do I know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you and your so crazy I, ideas indeed indeed and but i do worry about this and you know granite shaka um is is a really good player in many many ways but i kind of worry about um him being targeted uh for attention by by liverpool and they they really have got a pretty amazing attack um so yeah, I, I'm kind of expecting the worst from this one, to be quite honest. But mm. you never know. We might pull something out of the bag. But um, I, I agree with you. I think it will be a bit of a knife fight. And um, it will probably be like the odd goal in five or seven that wins it. <laughs> 
Uh, well, look, Premier League defending is something else this season anyway. There's been uh, lots of goals scored, and I think there will be uh, lots of goals. I just can't see a nil-nil or a one-nil no. uh, at Anfield. All right, well, look, we'll keep fingers crossed and hope that uh, our knife is sharper than their knife and more stabby <laughs> and slicey than their knife as well. Uh, Tim, we'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks a million. Pleasure. There you go. Thanks very much indeed to Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. That's at Stilberto. And, of course, he writes a column every single Thursday on arsblog.com, so do make sure you check that out. We have spoken a lot about this weekend and how important this game is. It's going to be a very tricky test, I think, going to Anfield after Stoke, the way Liverpool are attacking, the way we're defending. The chink of light, of course, is the way that Liverpool defends. So if we can outgun them, perhaps that's the way that we're going to get three points. Hopefully, though, with a more balanced side. Three central defenders or three people in the right positions in the back three. Kolasinac on the uh, on the uh, left-hand side. Oxlade-Chamberlain or Bellerin on the right-hand side, depending on what your preference is. Mine is Hector Bellerin. We'll have to wait and see what the manager's is. Uh, Alexis Sanchez back fit, so straight into the starting lineup for me. I want to see Alexis back because... Uh, uh, he just can make the difference in a game like this. He could be the man who makes the difference. And uh, if it is tight, or if we do need something, then he's a bit more likely to provide it than some of the other options that we have, particularly Walker or Welbeck coming from that deep position behind the striker. But look, we'll see how it goes. Um, Fingers crossed we can get a result. The right result, three points, would be lovely. It's one of those games where, all things considered, you probably take a draw. Uh, it has been a difficult ground for us to go to in recent years. So I think I would uh, I would take a point, but obviously would love all three. Uh, James and I will be here on Monday. Uh, we'll be uh, reviewing what happens at Anfield in the Arscast Extra. Thank you as ever for listening. Do remember to subscribe, whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Just subscribe to the podcast. Your reviews on iTunes, as ever, are very, very welcome indeed. Let's keep fingers crossed for Sunday. Have yourselves a great weekend. In the meantime, catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Holy God FM. There you go. That's Robbie Neville, elder brother, of course, of Gary and Phil, with his big hit from the 80s, C'est la vie, which in French means, that's the train tracks. You've got to be careful, of course, when crossing train tracks. We have an email here from a listener who says, Dear Holy God FM, I'm in a real quandary when it comes to work. Everybody says that I need to go out and spend lots of money bringing in experienced workers who can help the company do better. Personally, though, I think I should give the jobs to some apprentices 
who are super, 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 super talented. I think we'd be better off in the long term going with them, even if it means in the very short term we take a little bit of a hit. What do you think? Well, I remember many years ago a similar situation occurred at our seminary. Our high priest, or Deacon Blue as he was known, thought the very same as you to go with the young talent. But everybody told him, no, you need the experience and the established quality. It was very much a no-brainer. But he went with the young talent, and he was rewarded. Well, not so much rewarded as they were shite. Useless little cunts to lot of them, and the whole place went to rack and ruin. He lost his job not long after, and the last time anybody saw him, he was in the gutter, drinking Tesco Value Vodka. Is that what you want for the rest of your life? Swigging Tesco Value Vodka, looking at your pants, not knowing if it's rain or piss that's making them soaking wet, but knowing it's piss deep down because rain doesn't smell like piss. Anyway, hope that helped. Time now to get on with the music though. And this is a special request for all of you listening. Have you ever heard of an earworm? You know one of those songs that you hear and you can't get it out of your head? Well, this one's on me. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 